Hi, I'm Ilya Parker, and welcome to the Decolonizing Fitness Podcast. This is a socially conscious platform where we share the experiences of fitness and wellness practitioners who are helping to reshape their industries in support of all bodies. This podcast is not sponsored. All editing and production of these episodes are done by yours truly. But you can help support this podcast by joining my Patreon. Patreon is a membership-based platform where creators share their work with the world and in turn get support from their patrons. You can join my Patreon and gain access to lots of amazing content that I don't share anywhere else starting at just $2 a month. You'll get immediate access to workout videos, webinars, ebooks, discounts on merch, book reviews, and much more. If you would like to contribute funds so that I can offer free memberships, please contact me through my website. Hello, everyone. I want to offer a heavy content warning for this episode. We will be talking about racialized trauma and police killings, also police brutality. We'll be talking about anti-Blackness in the healthcare field. And for people who don't know, I am a licensed physical therapist assistant in North Carolina. I'll be talking to my good friend, Alicia McCullough, who is a licensed clinical mental health therapist in North Carolina as well. And we'll just be sharing our experiences as clinicians working in a very anti-Black environment uh, in this state. I do want to make one correction. Uh, Alicia lifted up the name of Makia Bryant, who was murdered by the Columbus, Ohio police on April 20th, 2021. Makia Bryant is actually 16 years old, and we say her name. We are recording this less than 24 hours after the verdict was handed down for Derek Chauvin. Derek Chauvin is a racist cop who so casually took the life of George Floyd on May 25th, 2020 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Chauvin was found guilty on all three charges of murder. Firstly, we have a black girl to thank for this murder conviction. Darnella Frazier was only 17 years old when she recorded the video. We also just had to endure a very traumatizing and unnecessary four-week trial for a murder the whole world essentially witnessed. While I want to honor that the verdict brings some relief to folks, let's be clear, this is not justice. It is the bare minimum. The state is always willing to sacrifice one of their own to give the illusion of justice. If it was justice, George Floyd would be back home with his daughter and fiance right now. If this was justice, the entire Minneapolis Police Department, which has a long history of police brutality and covering it up, would be defunded and those resources would be returned to Black communities in the form of reparations and social programs. Justice for victims means abolishing the police, period. There are so many victims of police brutality who go unnamed, especially those who have multiple intersecting marginalized identities. Black trans folks, in fact, are seven times more likely to experience police brutality than Black cis people. A carceral system will never truly bring justice to our community. We must continue the work of divesting from police, prisons, and court systems designed to protect property and capital instead of building well-resourced communities that are rooted in mutual aid, collective care, transformative justice, and true accountability. Many of us are still reimagining a world where we are no longer surveilled, criminalized, and funneled into the prison industrial complex. Okay, so let's get right into this episode. Thanks for tuning in. So Alicia, why don't you go ahead and share a little bit about yourself? 
Yes, Ilya, thank you so much for that introduction. Thank you for laying out that framework. And for all of those who are listening, my name is Alicia McCullough. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a millennial licensed clinical mental health therapist and a nationally certified counselor. As Ilya mentioned, I reside in the South, in North Carolina. So um, that's an experience that Ilya and I talk about often is just being in the South and some of the oppressions and the intersections of that oppression of being down here and experiencing a lot of that overt racism and overt discrimination and oppression um, throughout the vastness of our identities. Um, I'm also the independent published author of the book Blossoming, which is a book of poetry. I'm passionate about anti-racism, racial healing and decolonization within eating disorders and body liberation. I'm motivated to increase access and create space for Black, Indigenous, queer, people of color to come together and heal in spaces that inspire holistic wellness and culturally inclusive informed healing. Outside of more of the clinical work that I do, I'm also the co-founder of the Amplified Melanated Voices Movement that went global um, and viral last summer. Um, and I'm also the founder of the Holistic Black Healing Collective, as well as the uh, owner of Black and Embodied Counseling and Consulting PLLC. My work so far has been featured in Target, Bustle, Pop Sugar, and Forbes. And if you would like to know more information about me, you can find me on my website at blackandembodied.com or on Instagram at blackandembodied. Yes, y'all see why I'm excited <laughs> right there. Yes, absolutely. And before even getting into the racist history of healthcare, one of the things that I really appreciated is that you even set the frame for where we are coming in today. Like in this moment, as we're on this podcast episode, we have just found out about um, Derek Siobhan being charged um, with the three counts um, of guilty for killing George Floyd. And again, like you said, this is not justice. This is accountability. And if anything, it's performative accountability because the system, we, as we know it, is going to continue to protect their own. He just happened to be a martyr of the system that they decided to use in his example to make it seem as if they were portraying false justice. Because at the same time, they were actually uh, make, saying that he was guilty for the murder of George Floyd. Makia Bryant, a 13-year-old, a young black girl was killed by a police officer who she called for help because she was being bullied um, by some folks in her neighborhood or folks that came over and the police officer killed her without a second question about it when he pulled up to the scene. Mm -hmm. And so this is the America that we're looking at where on one side we're seeing this um, moment where we might be able to take a breath for a second and in the same sentence there's somebody else being killed by a police officer um, you know, at the hands of the state, you know, and so I was talking to someone earlier and I said, you know, for me, this feels like they said, okay, you know, well, they've got one of us charged, but we're going to get them back. This feels like a, a, the police system is a game. It's a, it's a state sanctioned game. And so this is what we're sitting with in this moment and sitting with the other lives that have been lost since um, this as this trial has been going on. And so I want to uplift and amplify Dante Wright, 20-year-old who was killed by um, a woman police officer who quote-unquote mistakenly um, said that her taser was her gun or her gun was her taser. Or Adam Toledo, who was killed, 13-year-old um, who was killed um, during this trial as well. I want to amplify and uplift those and the many others that have not been named but have also been victims of police brutality and violence as this whole trial has been going on and for this and forever in this country. Forever. And as, yes, forever. 
And as we go into that, I think it's important that I've seen a lot of people having conversations about police reform and criminal justice reform. And I think it's important that we know we will not ever reform an oppressive system, that the history of policing in America has always been racist. It came from the slave patrols during enslavement um, that would, uh, would hunt down slaves. And that was the language that was used, hunt down um, enslaved folk and bring them back and brutally abuse them. Um, and so I think it's important that as we talk about policing in America, that we're not just giving it a slap on the wrist, that we're not sitting in la-la land, that we're going to change all this by adding some new laws or more training for police officers. This is embedded in the whole system of what American policing is. And I think that even as we look at that, we know how even racism has been embedded in every system that we exist in. And so that's, you know, in your work, Ilya, as you talked about physical therapy, um, and for me as a mental health therapist, the whole mental health field is based on white supremacy. And so even when it was created, um, it was created by a guy named Benjamin Rush in 1794 that said Black people had leprosy, which is why our skin is Black. And he said that, um, we deserve to be enslaved. And then they had another guy that came after him, John C. Calhoun, who thought that slavery was helping African people because we were happy as slaves, which led to this concept around mental wellness associated with blackness and idiocracy. Um, and then we had another guy who came, and again, these are all the founders of mental health and psychology who said that black people were inherently sick. And so, for example, they classified um, black people that were trying to escape enslavement to say they had something called drapetomania um, that said they were mentally unwell if they wanted to be free. Um, they had another one that said slaves couldn't do work, and that was because they were la lazy, and that was called diastasia. And then they had um, that another one that said slaves that um, were sick needed to be beat that that's why you know they just needed to be beat and then they will be they'll be able to get the work done and not and they classify they got that as as these pika and so even as we think about the beginning of mental health in america we see that black folks were already being labeled anytime we were striving for our our liberation we were then diagnosed with a mental disorder for striving for liberation we were classified as being idiocracy or engaging in idiocracy and that was all related to our blackness and we were thrown in asylums even after the emancipation um, proclamation we were thrown in asylums if we were homeless now what enslaved person that just became free has a home to live in and so this was another way of locking up black folks for having mental what they classified as mental health issues and st stigmatizing and demonizing Black folks within the mental health field. And so even for my field as a mental health professional, the beginnings of psychology is rooted in anti-Blackness, racism, and oppression. Mm. Thank you so much, Alicia, for unpacking that. And that's, that's it's so important that we highlight the context in this moment. And I love how you brought all of that back to what's going on now, because it it's a history in which we've been pathologized and demonized. And that's why healthcare systems fundamentally are not rooted in the support of black people at all, in the support of black indigenous and people of color at all. And to piggyback off of the last piece you said with, with black folks being thrown, um, enslaved black folks being thrown in asylums, that's how part of how the occupational therapy um, was, was created because white middle-class women were brought into asylums to take care of 
to take care of specifically white people and to bring them to garner them back into society while all other folks who were disabled people of color black folks indigenous folks were discarded further in society and so that's that's really what the history of occupational therapy and physical therapy was built upon maintaining this westernized middle class version of converting white people who were deemed as um, pathologized in certain ways or needed a particular healthcare component to get them back to functioning productive members of society they were sent this specific type of help and so wow that that's that's just so so powerful yeah. and to be clear to be clear there's a white supremacist history of healthcare that is complicit in keeping uh, in enforcing ableism and anti-BIPOC colonial relations alive, alive and thriving through the continued oppression of our people. And it's a history of murder, torture, sterilization, and the appropriation of land in the name of medical research and in the name of medical care and healthcare. And Alicia, oh my God, the way you lifted up what mental health and mental well-being is founded upon. And then people are people are really like confused when you like, why black people don't want to participate in these systems, systems that are deemed and designed to kill us. Yes. To kill us. It ain't yes. no, it ain't no way around that. Yes. So we're we're really gonna get into um, I'm gonna share a little bit more about the history of physical therapy and occupational therapy. I'm kind of rolling in like allied health services together. And then hopefully we can talk about a little bit of our experiences. I definitely don't want to um, trigger myself or, you know, cause you to be triggered in any way, Alicia, yeah. but it is important to share yeah. um, just some of the experiences we've went through as exactly. black clinicians um, living in North Carolina. But as I mentioned, uh, history of occupational and physical therapy was really based in white middle class uh, in the United States specifically is what I'm referencing. White middle class women swooping in and coming and cleaning and fixing up things. And mm -hmm. um, specifically physical therapy um, was uh, white women who were affiliated with religious work and traditions. And then they were known as restore restoration aids and helping to rehabilitate injured soldiers in World War One. And also a lot of white women, it was a big polio um, surge of people having polio during that time. So a lot of white women were helping people through that, specifically white men, again, to be more productive members of society. Um, just like uh, occupational therapy, physical therapy was specifically designed to maintain the westernized status quo of what heterosexual, um, you know, middle class homes, nuclear families embedding that notion of what what Western life should be. Even if you like trace the the pediatric developmental milestones. All of that is based in in aligning with traditional Western child rearing philosophies. And a lot of these assessments and, and tests and measures we use in OT and PT to this day are very, very Westernized and rooted in white supremacy. Even the basic materials and supplies for uh, musculoskeletal re rehabilitation settings, such as Coben wrapping, pressure garments, 
orthesis, uh, orthosis materials are often reflected in whiteness and the standard norm because the deep fault color is white, is white or a very neutral color. All of the cognitive testing tools such as the, the MOCA, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, um, presumes the client's understanding of Western notions of time and space. In OT specifically, uh, the emphasis on achieving independence in daily occupations assumes that independence and daily tasks is a is a is a value that many people want to attain, but that's really a westernized value of what the emphasis is of what we place on society, rather than a more collaborative, communicative approach, which many non-white people um, in communities kind of hold near and dear in, in how we move in our societies. Again, these are just things that people don't realize, but this is the way tools of white supremacy continue to be embedded in our practice. Alicia, did you want to say anything? I do actually. So one of the things, and I think this, like when I think about both of our fields, I just hear how much it's so connected. So even as you were talking, I was taking some notes, what you were saying. And I even thought about how, you know, how you talked about how a lot of times the um, value systems were rooted in white child rearing. But it made me even think about how that even came from like eugenics that were that developed both of our fields, right? And so when I think about eugenics, I think about when they were doing the experiments of looking at black folks' head sizes and saying like, oh, they have smaller brains and, you know, their facial structure is like this. And so they're, you know, not as intelligent as we are. And then using that as a parameter for who's to research, who's allowed to um, determine who's, you know, who whose standards are we abiding by, you know? And so like, even that whole proportion there. And then also maybe think about that racial classification of seeing um, Black people being labeled as more lazy or um, labeling Black people as um, lacking control. And, you know, it's all everything being around how do we, um, we, we know better than these Black folks. And so that justification for why white people should be in leadership positions, why white people um, should like basically captivate these systems and, um, you know, put all the intelligence or the research or the work into that. We should just listen to whatever they say um, because they set up this stratification where it was like, we're at the bottom, we don't know anything and they're at the top and they get to create and we just are supposed to conform to it. Um, you know, over time, even though originally the goal was that we wouldn't even be um, functioning human beings within this society. It was it was expected that we would be um, annihilated after enslavement and that we would stay in that subservient role and we wouldn't be, you know, classified as humans. And then after that, of course, that's when it was like, okay, well, if they're going to be here, they're going to conform to these value systems. And so even hearing you talk about that um, and just how much it was based in all of the, these oppressive systems and then how we had to conform to those. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the thing. And that's why I think, you know, in all of the foundation of these institutions, you have literally the torture and the exploitation of black and brown and indigenous bodies solely to build these up with the assumption that we can disregard them or make them docile in order to continue to exploit and extract as much as we can out of these individuals. And if you don't want to conform to that, we're still going to create a society that either completely leaves you out or forces you to succumb to idea, westernized ideals that you never can really truly ascribe to. And then we're going to penalize you when you don't fit into those westernized ideals because yeah. they ain't meant for you no way. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the piece. They're not even meant for you. 
you know what I mean? Exactly. So yeah, that, oh man, that is so true. And I think that's why for me, especially um, getting into the physical therapy assistant program and always feeling like this shit ain't for me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just like, mm -hmm. what is, I'm literally doing every single thing they ask because I, I'll say this piece before we like really, really get into it. Like I, when, you know, when you research a, a, a program that you want to join and mm -hmm. your whole mindset is I'm going to follow blow by blow. Yeah. How I get into it, read the material and it's, and it's basic make good mm -hmm. grades, graduate, get my certificate, get my degree. But with, with physical therapy, it was something missing from that because I did every single one of those things yeah. and excelled in them, but I still kept failing. Exactly. You know what I mean? Performed mm -hmm. well, but still kept getting low marks. Right. And I could not understand that shit. Right. Yeah. And you, and you know, Ilya, it's because as you were going through that program, they are already saying they had already labeled you as other. And, you know, so everything that you did was just like, how do we find a tick mark to justify what we've already labeled you as then showing you that you don't belong here. And so you could have been doing everything right. But the fact is that it was already labeled that. And again, that's systemic, that's interpersonal, already labeled as other and already like experiencing that, oh, well, um, Ilya doesn't deserve to be here. And that, you know, that internalized and taking that within the system and literally, I mean, essentially beating you down throughout the process. I mean, you're striving for something that's unobtainable. You can't strive for white supremacy value systems and think that, that you're going to be successful in that. And that's what they want to keep you thinking. Like, if I just do all the right things, then I'll get to this place. No, there's no amount of right things that you can do to be enough to make it into this quote, you know, this white supremacy system that they've created. Yes. So I wanted to ask you, Alicia, like what made you choose your field in the first place? Like and what and what 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 were you thinking about the field before you entered versus once you got into to the field and what you started seeing? Yeah. So for me and, you know, I'll take it a little bit back. So for me, um, both of my parents, my father, he was raised in a very a poor family, black Southern family, um, rural area um, where both of my grandparents were farmers. And so they worked outside and most of his siblings were farmers. My father would have been a farmer, but he ended up going into um, the grocery business. So he, you know, uh, got a job at Food Line and worked himself up to become a manager of food line. And so that's the industry he's always been in my whole life. And so he never, you know, my, my grandparents didn't know anything about a college education. And it's been told to me that my dad actually got a, a scholarship to a college, um, but my grandparents, when the letter came to the house, they were like, what is this? And we don't do this, we're working. Like we're a working family. Like what is school gonna do for you? And again, I think that I try to view it in the context of the time period, you know, my grandparents, uh, my dad's parents, they were born, if I'm not mistaken, in the 30s or something like that. So they're a lot older and their mentality around what's necessary to live um, was different. And so they didn't think it was important for him to go to college. So he never went to college. My mother, um, she came from a, a, a more well-off family. Both of her parents had some college education. Um, however, she, you know, went to a semester um, at college. And then um, because we had some and I think there's so much ties in 
we had um, my uncle who was incarcerated and that took a big burden on my family and on her family. And so she had to return back home because of the financial strain and just the emotional strain that that had on the family. And so my mother was not able to finish college either. And so, you know, when I came along, that was a big value that both of my parents pushed that in order to get somewhere in life, you, you make all the A's and, and you know, you, you go to school, you excel, you try to be the perfect student and you go to college and get an education so that you can get out and get a good job. And so, especially being in the rural um, North Carolina where I was born, it's not a lot of folks that go to college. And so like, for me, that was a big step. Being a first generation college student, you know, getting into a university, you know, going, graduating, that was a big step for me. And so, at, you know, initially I didn't have the support system to say like, oh, here's your majors, here's what school to go to, here's all the things you do. I just had to figure all that stuff out on my own. And so I knew that growing up, I like to talk to people. Um, and so, you know, I was looking up careers. I'm like, where can I talk to people? And, you know, psychology came up from one and I'm like, I could do that. You know, I let my, I listen to my friends vent all the time. <laughs> so I was like, you know, I can definitely do that career. Um, and so I um, ended up getting into a early college program, which was for low income students. Um, in our hometown. And through there, I was able to get my first two years of college paid for along with my high school diploma at the same time. So when I finished my high school education, I also got um, a, a, an associate's degree along with that as well. Um, and so then I transferred up to a university um, in Greensboro, North Carolina. And um, through there, you know, I had two years. And I remember my parents telling me very clearly, even when I was in middle school, my parents said, you have to go to this early college program because you have a brother and a sister that are behind you and we can't afford for all y'all to go to college. And so in order for you to be able to go and make something of yourself, you need to go to this program and you need to finish everything on point. And that's just, that's all you have. And, you know, when I got to university, they said, you have two years and that's it. You know, you need to make this count. And so my experience of undergrad was, you know, really pushing myself really hard to try to say, okay, my parents told me two years, I can't be a failure to my family because that's another whole layer that was there too. And so um, I graduated with my psychology, um, bachelor's in psychology. And, you know, I thought before graduating, you know, that that would be enough. Again, first-gen student, I don't know anything about a master's program or a PhD or any of this stuff until I ran across uh, my dorm. I had a dorm um, building person. Uh, she was more like a dorm, uh, what we would say is like a um, someone who like kind of is over that dorm in, in a more professional in a more professional role. And I remember going to her office because I saw she had counselor on her door. And so I'm like, huh, what's, what's this counselor on your door? And she was telling me that, you know, I went and got my master's in counseling and, you know, what are you planning on doing with your life? And I'm like, oh, well, you know, I want to do therapy, counseling, you know, that whole thing too, psychology. And she was like, um, well, you know, you got to go get a higher advanced degree for that. And so here I am, my second year, first semester, of, um, you know, basically my last year of undergrad and I'm figuring out for the first time that I have to have a personal statement that I should have been making connections with re with um, my professors that, you know, I need to be involved in research that I need to de develop this whole, you know, curriculum um, CV thing here. And so I worked, you know, I worked my like, I worked so hard that last year to get all that stuff so that I could get accepted into a grad program. And I did. And so I got accepted in grad school. And even that, like you were saying, Ilya, and I think I really relate to this experience of like, you know, with our grad school, it was a mostly white class, you know, mostly white um, cohort that we had. And it was maybe, maybe seven of us that were of color. And I'm not saying black, there were just of color, seven of color folks in the class. And so 
even being there constantly feeling like that pressure to prove myself of like, okay, I made it into grad school. I'm the first person in my family to go to grad school, first person to graduate with a bachelor's. You know, I have to do this. I have to make this work. And I mean, there were tireless nights. I didn't have a direction. I didn't have anybody helping me out with that process, but having to figure it out and navigate systems that would tell me, for example, when it came to practicing therapy, you know, if I were just talking to a client, you know, in a way that is culturally acceptable for me or talk in a way that might be culturally acceptable for a client, they say, no, tone back your tone or, you know, sit this certain way or make your voice lighter. Your, your voice is too, it's too much, you know, like, and so just even throughout the program, constantly being told to erase yourself, to show up and like provide a service for other people. And I will say too, that another thing that I've had an issue with is that in these grad programs, you're forced to sit and reckon with rape, with injustice within these classes, with all these white folks that for the first time are just, you know, coming to terms with what privilege is or what racism is or what homophobia is or ableism. And you're sitting in the classroom with them and you're as the black classmate, you can't respond back because then you're labeled as the, oh, why is she so angry? Why is, why is she's not, you know, fit for this program? And so you have to sit there and hear them go through their racial or, you know, whatever awakening, and you're just sitting there like, okay, why am I experiencing a secondary trauma from this? And, and I was in grad school during the um, election, the first election of uh, Trump. And so I went through that whole process of white, of the Trump supporters in my grad program and their whole experience when, you know, um, different racial incidences came up and, you know, just the fragility throughout that program. And then our professors were all white, so they didn't understand anything and they were going along with it too. And so you kind of see yourself and you're like, if I speak up in my papers, if I speak up in general, if I, you know, have a reaction to anything that's happening here, I'm going to be the one that's kicked out of this program while they're going to excel, graduate and become therapists in this field. And it's a, it's a lot of pressure to be in that position, especially when you have a background where you've been told you're doing this for your family. And so you have that on your back while you're moving forward and saying, you know, I'm trying to get this degree. I'm trying to, you know, be able to service my people. I want to be able to, you know, help people with their mental health. And at the same time, there's so many of those systems that are in place every time to silence you, to erase you, to let you experience racial trauma without any type of support or help around it. You know, um, and I remember too, just having a white supervisor who would supervise me for um, my clinical hours and just having her be so meticulous around like the way I was speaking or, you know, we would have to record our sessions when we sit in front of a client. And I remember her pausing my tapes like every few seconds saying, why'd you do this? Why'd you look like this? Why'd you sit like this? What, what were you thinking in that moment? And me being, you know, at the time a grad student, I couldn't say like, oh, well, you know, here's my reasoning for this or that, or, you know, really speak back up to it and try to make a, a case for it because she's also the one writing off on my evaluations to say, does she deserve to be licensed or not? Does she deserve to graduate or not? And so it's just this whole culture around it. So um, that was my experience like in grad school. And then afterward, I've had my own um, share. It just continues, right? So like, you know, you graduate from grad school, you graduate with all these classmates that are, you have these opinions and beliefs and they go on and become therapists. And you, then you get in the field and it's just, it continues. And so even, um, you know, I got hired on at my first job right out of grad school and it was a really great job, you know, financially. It was the, the highest paying job I ever have in my, had in my whole life. 
You know, I um, had a lot of experience at that job, but I was working with a bunch of white um, cisgender liberal women. And, you know, at first, you know, I finally thought it's me, someone coming from more of a conservative um, Southern kind of city and then moving to a more kind of progressive city within North Carolina. I said, oh, well, like they finally get it. Like I'm not being called the N word. I'm not, you know, being seen Confederate flags, you know, and in, in, in at work or, you know, around the city. So this must be a lot better. And so, you know, just even that. So, you know, like I have developed this sense of trust for these people. And then over time, just seeing how, you know, that covert racism and systematic oppression is just right underneath the surface. It's not like it is, you know, when you're really in the rural deep south, but it's more like when you get to these areas, it's like right there. And they code it because at this point, they're highly educated. So they know all the right jargon to use. They know how to work the system in the way that favors them. It's not right in your face. And so they know how to hide things and, um, you know, kind of let it come out, you know, in a secret way. And then it's like when you try to, um, I guess, fight it or speak back against this, it's like, oh, I know I have the proof. Did you document that? Where did I say that at? You know, and all these type of things. And the system is backing them even stronger in those positions. So I think that for me, it's just been traumatizing being in this field. Um, as a Black therapist, as a Black therapist who's also not, who has decided to divest from white systems, because there are Black therapists that do not divest from white systems, that don't see an issue with the system that I described at the beginning of this podcast, and how it's still persistent and prevalent today. They don't see all of this, you know, and so they're working with clients and doing more harm, even though they might look exactly like that client. But I've, you know, chosen to divest and work from a decolonial perspective and an anti-racist perspective, and I think that, you know, in that work, it's just been a little isolating because not everybody is doing that. And at the same time, you're still working within that system because you have to get your licensure, your certifications, you have to get your CEU. So at some degree, you're still having to buy into these systems that are meant to push you out and meant to um, harm you and have harmed you along the way. Yes, Alicia, thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, some of your experiences. And 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 what I really pulled out of that from before you entered the program and really, you know, having the pressure of being like the first gen college student and going into these various programs and then excelling and moving and, and advancing and moving up towards different goals and then still having the pressure within the program maneuvering systems I, and on top of just being a black film maneuvering systems in a world outside of that just socially and then into a program and still have having to maneuver through these various various institutions but really don't have anyone that truly understands that family don't get it family they do the best they can with mm -hmm. saying, you know, keep at it, you know, we here behind you, but they they really just they've never been in this part of a system. So they really just don't understand where you're coming from. And then essentially being silenced when especially with the with you moving through that during the Trump era, mm -hmm. you know, and then being silenced in those programs is just like, oh, my God, I can't say shit. But then I'm also expected to educate some of my classmates and peers, but I can't share my own experience, but I got to coddle they white fears, they white guilt, they white whatever, why they moving through they shit on top of very rigorous programs that I'm in and just the course load and the work right. and asshole professors outside of them being racist. You mm. know what I mean? And clinicians that legitimately seek to fail you just yeah. straight up. They yeah. ain't even trying. They're not, they're not, 
they're they're giving they're educating you and that i did want to lift that up regarding the clinical settings in school um because first the we know these these programs are intentionally made to be rigorous and competitive just in yeah. general i think that's just the capitalist model of education and yeah. then like you lifted up it's not that many black folks specifically black folks who are already in these programs mm -hmm. so it is that much more rigorous for you to beat out people essentially to mm -hmm. be in these programs so when you end these programs you're you're uh, immediately due to anti-blackness you're viewed as not knowing as much um right. as your white peers but you're also expected to know as much and more as your white peers and excel and right. so then when you get into the clinical realm it's not education for you as an intern to help you be better. It's literally just like striking you down, striking you down to beat you down so you would want to leave the program yeah. or fail out. Mm -hmm. And that's the intentionality of a lot of the professors and clinical instructors to push you so to the point until you fail or leave. And yes. I've seen that so many times. Yes. So that's what you're... And it's not because it's it's delivered in this way of well you know I'm I'm doing this to to tear you down similar to how the military and all that fuck shit yeah. be happening I'm doing this to tear you down and build you up for character and you'll you'll be thanking us when you're when you make it out of the program because you survived all of this that rigorous thing. schooling no it's anti blackness yeah. it's that bullshit and it is literally torture exactly. it's torture. It it is. It's very much torture. It so is. I, oh, go ahead. And I just wanted to add into that, Ilya. And on the flip side of that, and here's what people don't understand is that then these programs get to say on there, because everything is about data and statistics. It's never about what's actually happening and all that. So when we look at the data and statistics behind it, it shows, well, you know, we allow this many, um, you know, people of color in the program and, you know, they just don't excel here, you know, like, because they're all failing out. We have a bad retention rate here when it comes to having them. And so that's where the data and statistics begin to show, well, hey, well, it sounds like that the people of color or other, you know, um, diverse groups are just not meant to be here because, you know, if they were, then why are they not excelling like the white students? So this is deeper, you know, even then, even unfortunately than the torture we're experiencing, this is about whole lives systematic push out around. We just want to make these pro, we want to justify why we bring in this many white students in comparison to this many, you know? Right. right. That's a very good point about the data and the retention levels. Thank you for lifting that up because that is huge. And it, and then it, and it continues to put the onus on the black student because this because you constantly feel like you're not good enough and you like, well, damn, I did fail this course. I mean, I did fail this test. I did fail, you know, so yeah. let me continue to study harder, study harder because your peers also don't understand why you're not getting it. When you're literally sitting in the same class with them, taking in the same information with them, taking notes just like them, and but you're still failing or you're graded extensively. And one thing I also wanted to to name as far as uh, physical therapy, which is, you know, the allied health uh, services, which I actually love as a field, because I think, number one, the the amount of time that you have to go to school is not that much to be able to get a very good return on your educational investment. Mm -hmm. 
So I went to school for a PTA degree, even though they crammed about three to four years worth in a two year program. It was a very, very good program. And I and you could come out of that program doing fairly well um, and with not having a lot. You, I didn't have any debt, uh, student loan debt, because I paid as I went. And I mean, and you can get financial assistance and things, assistance and things like that. So the the field in and of itself was was something that I really truly loved, and I felt like Black folks could excel. But with that came with Allied Health, it's a lot of like practicals and and clinical application where you have to move in a certain way, and you have to, and so you can. It, it was an at will program, and it can easily be justified to kick you out oh you didn't perform this particular therapeutic technique and it was just something i kept noticing about the way you moved even it's even the the programs are even fat phobic like you're too large to be able to utilize some of these moves to move fast enough if a patient needs something and and this is that and the third and i noticed that consistently because it was about five or six black people in our program and then the folks who um, were from uh, the black folks who were from like African countries who had heavy, heavy accents, yeah. they were immediately kicked out like day two to like one week into the program. Wow. Um, and but during the practicals, we got graded so severely and our peers didn't see it because our practicals oftentimes only involved the professor or the um uh and the other peer that we were working with who was like the patient Mm -hmm. so they so only that peer that we were working with would truly see how brutal the professor was were were to us and we really couldn't say well the black students really couldn't say well you were actually much nicer to this other you know easy grading on this other on our white peer because we weren't in their clinicals we only had like word of mouth through the peers and a lot of white people was just happy to just move through the program and they got guided along on a fluffy cloud through the program and these were the same people who came out into the field and didn't know shit and were still Mm -hmm. elevating in the field Mm -hmm. solely because they're white especially and that's why i made sure that i highlighted the history of occupational physical therapy and speech therapy because it is embedded in basic white womanhood and half of them don't know shit and they are constantly constantly elevated in our programs even more so than white men even though white cis men have taken over take over any field but I will, I firmly believe that physical therapy and occupational therapy is definitely ran by white, cis white women, cis het white women specifically. Absolutely. And I was going to say, like, just to add to that, Ilya, um, even when I think about um, a lot, while I did talk about initially, you know, how the fathers of modern psychology were mostly white, cisgender men, um, when we think about more specifically the fields of counseling or social work, um, those were actually formed by white, cisgender women. And so I'm thinking about um, Jane Addams, who who actually advocated for lynching, saying that Black folks who were lynched were guilty. And she was one of the founders of social work. You know, and that social work is considered one of the most, you know, social justice informed fields within the whole mental health profession. And so that's who's founding their, their, you know, 
um, field and discipline and moving forward and, and infusing those ideologies into the field. And they're supposed to be the most social justice informed. And I've even talked to a few friends that I have that are social workers that talk about how, yeah, the field is mostly dominated with white cisgendered women who have never spent a day, you know, in a low income community, that have never spent a day with a black person, that have never spent a day with a trans person, that has never spent a day with anybody outside of who's in their bubble yet or out here making decisions in communities that they have never stepped the foot in and have no lived experience about these communities at all. And it really perpetuates more harm. It really does. Yeah, it truly does. Thank you so much for for lifting that up too and it, it creates this this position for um white women specifically in this context to be gatekeeper gatekeepers in a sense to be like the the welcoming host and in entrance into healthcare. Mm -hmm. they know everything they're this neutral being and they're here to educate. And when they show up in anti-Black ways, and similar to when you said you started working with white uh, liberal uh, women, um, cis women, and you thought that they, you know, obviously you thought they was gonna be, you know, better than than the racist, you know, conservative people that we see in these little these little towns in North Carolina with the Confederate flags. But they still try to have this position as if they're this neutral being or this being that's more conscious when really it's still embedded and rooted in white supremacist notions of how you should move. And no one has room to hold them accountable because they're neutral. They're a healthcare worker. They're just a clinician. You know what I mean? They're doing their job. And I'm, I'm so sick of hearing once I entered the field that, oh, we're going to base your, um, we're, we're solely going to evaluate you based on your clinical abilities. It has nothing to do with race, gender, sexuality, any of those things, religious affiliation, none of that. It's solely your clinical ability, and that's just not true. Exactly. If, and one thing I will say, when I started working in, a ho in hospitals in North Carolina, I experienced minimal transphobia, but I experienced a lot of anti-Blackness yeah. throughout my entire school career, as well as my work career. It was yeah. very, very much rooted in anti-Blackness. So do you want to share, um, do you feel comfortable sharing some of your specific anti-Blackness experiences yes. when working I, in the field, Alicia? Absolutely, I can. And I think that this is important because this is something and I, so yesterday, and I'll just maybe frame it like this. So yesterday was actually my one year anniversary of leaving a toxic racist work environment that was literally draining the life out of me. And, you know, during that, this time last year, Ilya and I, you know, had been talking on the phone, catching up. And I mean, I literally had no mental capacity to even process anything, to do any of the work that I'm actually passionate about, because I had been that drained and so much had been taken from me from that experience that I just couldn't, I didn't have anything else to offer. And so, um, you know, I think I, I, I frame it that and talk about it in that like bluntness and that directness and that this is what we're sitting with. Like, this is what we're contending with is that's how severe being in these work environments can be. And so for me, like I was saying before, when I first started off, you know, I had just got hired on as an intern, like I was their intern there for a year. And then, you know, me and the director of the company had got real close, 
and you know, she was this liberal white woman, woman um, who was, you know, at the time, like I told y'all, I was finishing up grad school at, during the Trump election. So she was, you know, pro Hillary and, you know, had all the comments. And so here I am, you know, thinking that, okay, you know, she's real lenient, she's cool. And then when it came time for me to graduate, she pulled me into her office and she said, you know, hey, I've really been loving the work we've been doing here together. I think you're an amazing clinician. I would love to hire you on full time if you'll have us. And of course, me, you know, as somebody who didn't have any, you know, and I will say too, it's it's really hard when you're graduating from grad school to get a job right outside of grad school. Most folks, it takes them six months to a year um, to get that job because there's so, even within the field, there's so much expectations that you already have experienced that, you know, why would you have all that experience when you just graduated? I'm not sure, but they have that expectation. So it can be a bit hard to kind of like you know, get into this space, because a lot of it is not really what you know, but who you know. So, you know, that's the whole thing. But when she, you know, called me into her office, I was like, okay, cool. Like, you know, here I am about to get on salary. Like I said, I'm getting paid really well, especially for someone that just got out of school and was working on my licensure process. Me and her had a really good dynamic at the time. And so I was like, yeah, this is about, this is dream job right here. But, you know, as I got into it, you know, that imposter syndrome came up. And so there'd be times where, you know, the first couple weeks or so, months or so when I was hired on, I would be afraid for people to walk past my office and see me on my phone. Cause I was like, oh my God, I don't want people to think that I'm not working. I don't want people to think that every minute of the day I'm not doing something, which I think really relates to that anti-blackness that we were talking about earlier, how black folks, you know, from the beginning of time of racial classification got labeled as lazy and, you know, they don't want to work and all this. And I think that's, something I had internalized that internalized anti-blackness but also that internalized capitalism saying that I had to work 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 and never rest meanwhile all my white co-workers are running around running out getting coffee you know they're in each other's office giggling but I was so afraid to look like I wasn't you know working because I didn't want anybody to think oh she's not taking this serious or you know she don't need to be here and so you know that was my first experience and when I you know as I got in me and the director got you know continued to get pretty close and we were cool and I will say you know as I was there again working in this liberal mostly white cisgendered um, woman environment you know they do little things like you know if I got braids in my hair they come and touch my hair and be like oh is this your hair or something like that and you know at the time while I did take offense to it I was kind of like, all right, I'm in my probationary period. You know, I don't want to say nothing that, you know, people are going to, you know, kind of see me as unapproachable and like, let me just try to keep the, you know, the peace here. And so different things like that were happening. Um, I had this one um, white um, colleague who would kind of talk down to me. And then there was this other dynamic where because I was the youngest person in the company, um, a lot of the uh, folks that were there would try to emphasize me. So they kind of you know, talk to me like I was, you know, like their child or something like that. So already there was this weird power struggle of like, you know, they're viewing me as this young, you know, childlike person. And also the fact that I was an intern there the year before. So I still had that kind of what they would say is a subordinate role and as an intern versus like what they called us then was um, your a full-time staff or your senior staff is what they called you once you got hired on full-time. And so I moved very quickly from an intern who like, you know, they kind of saw us as damsel in distress or this inconvenience to a whole time, you know, senior staff member that was technically their colleague and on their level. And they did not make that transition did not go well. Um, and especially with me being a black femme and woman. And so like, even that whole experience was, you know, a lot for me, like even navigating that I was constantly anxious, 
you know, again, like constantly kind of looking over my shoulder, like are people thinking things about me or how do I not make trouble here? And then over time, we started hiring on more black folks. And so, as, and I was excited about that because I'm like, there's more people that look like me here. Um, however, there will be more racial incidences that happen. So one I'll speak about specifically is that there was a black mental health conference that came up that me and a few black colleagues wanted to go to. And we had to justify why we wanted to go to the conference. We couldn't just like uh, everybody else can just say, oh, I want to go to this conference on whatever topic it is, or art therapy or, you know, child therapy or whatever. But when it came to the black conference, we had to write up a whole justification for why we wanted to go and what we'd be getting from it and why do they need to spend the money to send us there. And then we came back and mind you, this black conference was around it was around sacredness, you know, it was around how do we support each other as black folks in the mental health field. We were talking about so many things. And so when we got back from the conference, of course, you know, there were some things we were thinking about and, and we kind of kept to ourselves about, well, they didn't like that because they couldn't be on the inside of what happened when we went away to the conference. And then our boss um, requested and demanded that we send her everything we learned at the conference and, um, that we presented to the staff. And I said, and we, you know, there was a bunch of conflict around, well, we don't feel comfortable presenting this to the staff because there's, you know, based on some of the things that have happened here on the staff, there's a lot of fragility here. We really can't, you know, talk about black issues without people getting offended. So we don't feel comfortable then bringing back what we talked about and then having to cater to or have people upset because we're talking about black mental health. And so she didn't understand that. And there was a whole riffraff around that. And, and even it went up higher over her head um, to the next person in charge. So she went to them demanding that we send all this stuff over and, you know, all this and that. And so that was, you know, one huge kind of blow up thing that occurred. Um, and then I know that for me, and this kind of goes into, I think, gatekeeping. And so um, for me as a clinician who, once you graduate as a therapist, you, um, while you do get your licensure, you're kind of under this provisional st status of licensure. And so you have to gain for counselors 3,000 hours towards your full licensure. And it specifically has to be 2,000 direct hours. That's face-to-face -face sitting across from a client and 1,000 indirect, which is paperwork and things like that. And so, you know, I wanted a black supervisor and, you know, I had asked my boss if I could work with a black um, person we had hired on. And she told me, no, she said, I will be your supervisor. And at the time we had this really rickety rockety relationship. So I was kind of like, I don't really feel comfortable with that. You know, now you're responsible for whether or not I get fully licensed because you're, you know, the supervisor and you're marking off my hours and all this stuff. Well, we had that conversation and she, um, and I said, okay, well, if you don't, if you're not okay with me seeing this other person, then is it okay if I pay for supervision outside of our institution, which typically is, is allowed for most institutions. But she told me, no, you will not pay for supervision outside of here. That is not allowed. And so I called my board, I called my licensing board, and they said, we can't control what your director decides to do within your company. You have to kind of abide by that. And even if you put out a complaint on your director um, for ethics or anything like that, just know you're putting yourself at risk for being terminated from your job. So now I'm in this stuck position of, I have this director who's supervising me from a overall director, you know, relationship within the company, but then there, she's also forcing me to basically do clinical supervision with her as well. I've called my licensing board and they're saying I can't do anything about it. And so now I'm stuck with her. And I remember we would have so many conversations where I'd say, I don't think this is fair. 
you know, I know that there are other people I can work with. Even it, can I work with this other person? And at one point she just told me, no, you need to stop going back and forth about this. I said what I said and you will work with me. And I, and at my, at the end of my employment with her and that, with that company, um, I have been keeping up with my hours. And so they have, you have to turn in like a final supervision log to your board when you end a supervision relationship. So when we ended it, I, you know, tried to turn my, my log in and I sent her the hours that I had written down. And she told me, she said, our hours don't match. I'm not writing down what you have on your log. Yeah. I have a lot less hours than what you have written down. And so even as I was leaving that situation, I was set back from getting my full licensure hours. And I'm still currently not fully licensed wow. because of how far she set me back in that process. And so I'm this so is that gatekeeping and anti-Blackness. Thank you, Ilya. This is exactly how it shows up. And that that it's on top of you just working in a field, the pressure coming from you simply working in a field, working nine to five, mm-hmm. and all that you have to endure. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry you went through all that, Alicia. Thank you, Ilya. And I and I'll say even for us, it wasn't even nine to five. It was eight to five. And when I tell you, I'm glad you even brought that up because that was another piece of I think anti-blackness as well. You know, I feel like as if you're coming to a company and make and you know your job is to see clients and it's already a heavy job in itself because there was a lot of um it was a lot of lack of boundaries around the amount of clients we were seeing so there was already some unethical things happening in the background there too um but if you're coming in i remember there would be times like coming at 8 8 or 8 10 she'd write me up and send me an email and say hey just want to document this um you're supposed to be here at 8 8 8 a.m and you came in at 805 um, so just mm-hmm. want to make that clear, just to let you know you got, you know, here's a write up here. So keeping track of that so I could get intentionally pushed out. And I'll say, too, it was just so difficult in that I and others were experiencing this, other black folks were experiencing this. And I will say I had it the worst. And, and a lot of other people agreed on that. And we would go to HR and HR would smile in our face and be chummy and say all the right things. But then go back and tell her what we said. And then the, mm-hmm. the abuse and violence would get worse in the background because now she knows and so she's trying to get ahead of it so it got to a point where she even said you can't sit in your office with your door closed and so if i had to call about a medical emergency or talk to my doctor or anything like that i couldn't even close my door to my office because that's how micromanaging and controlling she had got around that Mm, i'm so sorry and let's let's really lift up the gatekeeping and you know how we talk about quote unquote, good old boy networks in particular in rural South um, communities. Let's talk about that type of that type of network um, that is that that is made up of of white cis women in these communities where, like you named, it's who, you know, with getting access to to just being employed. And, And then also you don't have anyone to talk to because they all know everybody and they will literally bar you from working in these communities. Yeah. Everybody is friends. Everyone knows someone and you, you, you don't truly have the support in that way from, well, H, you know, HR ain't for the employee anyway, exactly. but you know, you just never have that, that structure of support truly in place because it's just a network of white women looking out for each other. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm, yes so real Ilya how like even hearing that because I know again me and you were talking and I think that when I was sharing my experience with you I heard you say a lot of like in that time like you know I understand I've been there you know I experienced Mm. this I experienced that like how did it show up even for you yeah it showed up very similar I think in my hold on let me pause Alicia I'm I'm hearing some type of echo on your end I don't I hope that don't translate and that's why I haven't really been 
um like you know how i used to be like oh uh, um. yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> so i didn't want you to think i was just like what but um <laughs> but okay i'm gonna start it back up is it better yeah that's better now okay thank you but yes very similar alicia like you know and i and i first experienced that in the program because um i went to a community college that was like number two for their pt rated number yep. two for their mm -hmm. pta uh program and and so it was already this network where they had connections all across up and or up and down the east east coast specifically yep. mm -hmm. uh, and so professors early on would say hey all we got to do is make a phone call and you mm -hmm. ain't gonna get no job so it's, it's it, the way you show up in school will very much determine how you're employed when you graduate mm -hmm. so it was already that pressure and and also professors coming in you coming into professors who are already just very, very much anti-black and just racist overall. So they are they coming through, you coming through the door, they're not liking you and exactly. they're not wanting you to succeed. Exactly. So it so I always teeter this line in the program. Number one, just being a, a vocal person who was already in um social justice spaces. So I was used to kind of like naming what was happening. Mm -hmm. And then and number two, so trying to like curtail that a lot but also trying to advocate for myself in the midst of these programs because i knew what was happening but just really not having a leg to stand on and okay. so and you know so translate i i went through a process where i actually failed the clinical but because i made so much noise because usually in my program if you fail a clinic rotation you're out period yeah. no questions asked yeah. and so but i made so much noise about racism and was threatening to go to um, EOC um, yes. and, and really make some noise about that, that they said, okay, just take the semester over again. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I remember the rotate, the clinical rotation that I failed sitting there and looking across from my instructor when she graded me and she literally put all zeros on my final evaluation wow. for an eight week rotation. Wow. All zeros and the hell and torture that I went through on that rotation. I I mean, and a lot of that stuff I have honestly blocked out because it was so stressful. And I feel like that's that's a huge part of why my blood pressure and yes. some of the chronic pain I carry mm -hmm. is still in my body to this day because yeah. it was so brutal. And so then when fast forward, when I do get into the field, it's very similar. It's like, hey, we know this person, we know that person. All we got to do is make a call. You can't leave here because we'll just call the next, you know, hospital. Mm -hmm. We'll call the next uh, rehab place and you won't get a job anywhere. So fall in line here. Yep. We're going to continue to ride you, do whatever we need to do let allow for anti-blackness to show up in all kind of different ways take you off the schedule yep. you know constantly write you up constantly have you in the office constantly distract you from patient care constantly 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 ride you until you quit the field altogether mm -hmm. or you just have a mental breakdown and mm -hmm. nervous breakdown and that so many of my black colleagues have literally had nervous breakdown mm -hmm. in the field um, or have moved to different states or moved across the country. And so that's just some of the um, 
some of the the particular gatekeeping and this this network of therapists and not even just the managers i want to lift this up too it's not what i noticed was especially in a large hospital that i worked at there was the clinical staff was about 200 therapists all together that was ot speech and pt Mm -hmm. and the therapist actually dictated how management ran Mm -hmm. when the therapist Mm -hmm. had an issue which in particular were the most the white and the most um the ones who had the most access to power and privilege meaning they were already wealthy their husbands may have been surgeons or ceos of other companies had a lot of social influence and community a lot of social capital they dictated the moves that management made so you couldn't even go to a manager about a coworker without you being exed and i constantly was having coworkers tell management about me or constantly having Mm -hmm. management just ride me all together or me going and having a concern about a coworker literally harassing me. I had coworkers follow me all throughout the hospital, take pictures of me on their phone to show. And like you lifted up Alicia about black folks, always having to prove that we're not lazy to show that or that highlighting my clinical notes of where I made this mistake or or didn't charge a patient right and or you know didn't charge for a service right and all of this type of stuff so it was just like this constant constant surveilling that Mm -hmm. um that I literally experienced on and on and on and the last piece I'll say that's not even to get into especially living in North Carolina that's not even to get into all the racist patients yeah the race sense people that you have to support where i've had several patients the whole out just call me the Mm -hmm. (laughs) n-word just be like i ain't gonna see that in yeah so give me another therapist um constantly want to see my credentials constantly i'm on i'm being interviewed before i can even work with them they want to know where i went to school what i do what you know what what are my recreational activities they constantly want to see my badge don't believe my badge think i got a badge from somewhere else don't think i'm a physical therapist and so it was just all of that pressure all of that anti-blackness just all of the surveilling that it's just constant 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 it is it is Ilya, and i just wanted to um, uplift and amplify a couple of the things that you said and the first part was when you were talking about just having to be in your classroom after they failed you that semester and having to advocate for yourself and i think that you know for people that do hold a lot of privilege and don't understand they're like oh well, why would they do that oh i would go and i would do all this i'd go to the dean i'd go here but you don't have that voice because when you go you're just a complaining mm-hmm. you know student that don't want to work hard and so i think like you were even saying you feel alone and even having to advocate for yourself because you know nobody else is going to do it you know and like just knowing that that you are your only support you are your only ally in that environment and so that was one thing that really stood out to me that you were saying and then I, um, you know, thought about when you were talking about even you're going through all this stuff in the background, you know, with your um, colleagues and with your boss and, you know, within the system, and then you're still being forced to um, go back out and provide patient care. And so, you know, I even know it, it sounds like you experienced this too, but I know there'd be times where my boss would pull me into her office, have these heated discussions about all these things or do something, you know, conniving. And then I have a session in the next five minutes. And at this point, my body's dysregulated. Mm-hmm. Emotionally, I'm shocked. 
but I have to go and get myself together to show up for whoever comes into my office next without mm-hmm. there being even transition time for that. And just how un- even unhealthy that is, is bringing that spirit and energy into a space where you're supposed to be caring and showing up for somebody else after you just experienced that as well. And so that really stood out when you were talking about that. And then um, I think too, when you were saying your colleagues that were, you know, just because of how intense this is, while you're even going through all this, you have to keep a strong face with it. You have to, mm-hmm. you, you know, you can't let anybody see you sweat or cry throughout it because you don't want to appear like you're breaking down because while white people can go to work and cry all day about something that they're upset about, if they watch the news and come into work, they can bring their full selves in and talk about how much they don't like Trump or how much they don't like Biden or whoever, but how we don't have that privilege. And so when there's times when things happen, whether that's right before you showed up to work, someone in your family passed away or, you know, you just heard about a murder on TV and then you're having to show up. You don't have time to break down because when you quote unquote break down, then they're seeing you as incapable. Now you've been labeled as incompetent. You don't have that sp- that same privilege to be able to express yourself fully and holistically as they do. So that really stood out to me. And then just thinking about everything you talked about, I heard you use the word blocked out. And I just thought about how even, you know, we had these experiences maybe not that long ago, right? Like it's been within the past five to 10 years potentially. And yet, like you said, it's so traumatic that our bodies and brains go into the process of the only way I can move forward from this is by blocking it out, numbing it out because it's that traumatic of being in those situations. And like that, like you said, taking a physical toll on your body. I know for me, I had to go to therapy specifically to recover from that job experience. You know, and just the the toll it just takes on you just as an overall human being, because it really breaks you down to the point that you're like, is it me? You know, am am I just incapable at some point? These are some of the thoughts they want you to think, you know, so you have to, that's something you have to work through as well. And then also you were just saying how, you know, coworkers policing you and, you know, watching you and hypervigilant. Absolutely. And so it's almost like everywhere you turn, somebody's waiting for you to make a mistake. So they can justify the thoughts they already have about you and justify what they were already planning to do to you. And so it made me think about even for me when I was talking about the eight o'clock thing, even though my boss sometimes didn't know what time I came in, the person, my um, colleague directly beside me, this white Karen, you know, she was clocking the time. She literally be standing outside her door when I keyed into mine and looking at her watch and go back and report it Mm -hmm. to my boss, you know. Or I had um, a couple other white Karens go and I'm using Karen because this is exactly the mentality you know, is that they would go back and, um, you know, say things like Alicia's really volatile, or I just don't know, she just seems unapproachable, or I just can't talk to her. She didn't reply back to my email at the time I felt like she should have. They, they're going and building a case with my boss so that when, you know, I come in for my mid-semester review or my end of year review, these are the things that are coming up on me. And so I remember I had one, I had my uh, first review, which was around how I was just doing with my job performance. And Everything was excelling. They couldn't say anything about my job performance because I was always on point about that. But I remember two weeks later, my boss put me in with this new thing called an institutional um, and work culture performance where she went through and said, you know, it's just the way you interact with your colleagues. You know, you're just very volatile. I've heard that a lot. Or, you know, when we're in meetings, I noticed that you looked at your phone and, you know, that just doesn't seem like you're present in the meeting. Um, or, you know, just all these little tit for tat things that are around, I can't get you on exactly what you're supposed to be doing, but I'm going to get you in the background on how we're thinking you're showing up within this culture. 
Oh my goodness. I'm not going to hold you, but I can relate to that. And I literally had, cause the language was, was a little bit more intense back when I was going through school mm -hmm. and, and in, in the field, but I literally had to sign behavioral contracts. So, wow. so the ways, the ways that we are policed when we show up, because I was too, was told I was volatile, too aggressive, mm -hmm. frown too much, let out too many deep sighs when my clinicians were talking, mm -hmm. seemed like I, and, and that's the thing too, what I noticed that it was everything I did with staff or with supervisors it was yep. never the way i interacted with patients that's exactly. one thing they could exactly. never ring me on and they tried as hard as they wanted to but they couldn't find anything it was always oh when you were in a staff meeting you kept frowning and looking down and turning away and so i remember signing behavior contracts in school where if i showed up x amount of times in this way again i would immediately fail the program yeah. If I and and then when I had the performance appraisals, like you mentioned, it was other pieces of the performance appraisal and that I would either get written up. And if you got written up too many times, you lost your job yeah. or I wouldn't get the raise or whatever. And it was just all of these ways that we were policed, um, you know, throughout the field um, and, 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 you know, under the guise of of helping you to be a better clinician. But really, exactly. it's just anti blackness. It is. It so yes. much is. Yes. yes. Thank you so much, Alicia. This is this conversation, man, just highlighting some of the experiences and us being in alignment with going through a lot of those things and being able to share that and provide support to each other. That means the world to me. Um, and although it, it saddens me in a lot of ways that much of our friendship was built on our connection with going through such harmful stuff and traumatic stuff. I'm just thankful that you too, being in North Carolina, can really relate to a lot of what I experienced. Yeah. So, so kind of want to shift gears a little bit and talk about some some of the decolonial frameworks that you lifted up that you're moving through and practice now, and just maybe if we can speak more from like the the anti-racism lens and yeah. and things that we can kind of incorporate in our work moving forward and feel free to share anything about that yes absolutely so one of the things that came up for me is like last year with all of the um racial trauma incidences that have been going on but just have been more publicly shown in the media and videotaped um it became overwhelming for me to personally sit across from a lot of southern uh conservative uh trump supporting white clients and so one decision that i made for myself as an act of self-care um, was that I will not be working with um, clients that, you know, present in that way. And, you know, mm -hmm. while some people in our field feel like, well, that's not ethical because you're now discriminating against those clients. Well, I would disagree to say that there's some clinicians that have specific specialties where they'll only see people within their specialty. And that's totally okay. Like there's clinicians that specialize in LGBTQ plus, you know, work. And so, you know, they will only see folks within those communities and that's perfectly great. Or if there's, you know, other clinicians that are like, I'm only doing art therapy based things. So I'll only be seeing clients from here. So I think that argument only really gets used when it comes to a black person um, or even a person of color saying, oh, I, you know, I don't feel comfortable working in this way. But it never is the other way around when a white clinician says, I don't really feel comfortable working with a black client or something like that. So I just want to uplift that because I know that's a common argument I hear when that comes up. Um, 
but for me, that was a decision that I made. And then when I do, and that's not to say I don't work with any white clients. I do have white clients on my caseload. Um, but the majority of the work, that the majority of folks I do have on my caseload are Black, Indigenous, people of color at all intersections of their identity. And I think for me, that's really important in that as we've talked about so far today, when you're in a field that's been steeped in racism, anti-Blackness, colonialism, white supremacy, and when that field for years and years and years has been amplifying, passing through white folks, specifically white, cisgendered women and men, you know, you don't have a lot of clinicians that look like you when you do try to come and seek out therapy. So, you know, we have had an increase of clients with all the racial injustice and with the coronavirus that have said, you know, I need help. Like there's, a, this is bringing up a lot for me. It's bringing up my racial trauma. It's bringing up PTSD. It's bringing up, you know, all of these depression and anxiety. And so when they come in though, oftentimes they're greeted by a white clinician who hasn't had experience with them or any of their concerns. They've been through these white programs. They've been in these white jobs and they haven't had to reckon with what is it like to sit across from someone who's different than you? What is it like to actually support them and not just do treatment, but to actually support them in their healing journey? And so for me, that's why I've chosen to say I'm specializing with black and indigenous people of color at the intersections of all identities because we don't have a space like this is the space and so even when I'm working with folks um you know I do understand especially down here in the south there's still a lot of anti-blackness even when working with people that look like you and so a lot of my work um often involves you know working with that you know working with that anti-blackness that can show up and whether that's even what I experienced in grad school of that internalized capitalism or that feeling of like oh I'm being perceived as lazy and all these other things that's some of the work that's coming up you know when I'm working with folks and as I take that kind of decolonial perspective with it, that decolonial perspective is really around how do we create the least oppressive systems for these folks that are seeking out mental health support. And that's on every level. That's from the moment they enter your office. Do we have chairs that don't have handles so that people in bigger bodies are not feeling like they don't have a place to sit in the lobby? That's in our marketing and our media. Do people of all identities feel as if they can come up in here and see themselves seen or feel safe in this space or even feel like they can access these services without thinking, oh, I'm not going to be able to get the care I need? Do people feel like they can come into your office and know that you're going to use their correct pronouns or that or are you going to be the person that's still trying to call them by dead names and things like that? You know, so I think that these are some of the ways that we're talking about how are we at making our practice decolonial? How are patients or clients? being more agents of change within their own work. And so that looks like, you know, maybe, you know, as we're going through our treatment plan, I'm not just a clinician in the background typing on my computer, a diagnosis and a treatment plan for a client. We're co-creating that together. And on the background, they're knowing what they're being diagnosed with. And if they don't agree with it, we're talking about well, what, what works better for you. And I know yes. that, you know, that can be hard because, you know, with insurance companies and paneling, a lot of them have, um, Kind of these limitations on how much they'll pay you out based on whatever diagnosis you have so sometimes you know it's kind of figuring out how do i finesse the system here so that i'm not doing more harm however i'm not also being exploited by the system and not getting paid you know or anything like that and so even for me i mean it looks like too i have a sliding scale system so i ask clients if they can't afford full out-of-pocket rates or they can't afford to use their insurance they don't have insurances what can you afford to pay you know because that's what's important. I never want finance finances to be a barrier to, to access care that you need. And then throughout the therapeutic dynamic, and something I've had to do a lot of work for in my own decolonial practice is that, again, I went through this whitewash program that told me how to talk from everything, how to sit, how to look, how to, I should make my voice, my inflections, my everything. 
And so for me, it's undoing that psychologically, like in the session with the client. So I can use slang with my clients. I can, you know, talk and I can talk about stuff because that's another thing. The field tries to tell you if um, if a political topic or something comes up, try to keep it neutral. No, if my client, like I had a client coming yesterday and we literally were talking about the trial. We were talking about anti-blackness because I'm not going to sit here and act like what's happening socially is not impacting their day-to-day life. And so we are going to talk about that. Um, and I'm fine with that as a clinician. And so like even having those tough, quote unquote, tough conversations that might be tough for other clinicians, but being able to bring whatever is happening in their outer world into that inner session, because you know that all of that is influencing how they're showing up in that moment. And so um, that's just one aspect of it for me. And then I also say that um, I, through the decolon, I did a, a decolonizing therapy training with uh, Shauna Murray Brown out of Maryland. Um, and so in that training, we talked a lot about reconnecting with our indigenous ways of healing. And so um, that's our African-centered ways of healing, other indigenous ways of healing. And so that could look like, you know, maybe you send a client to someone who is more of a spiritual divination person. Um, Maybe you're having them get readings done. Maybe that, maybe it's better for them to be doing more work in the energetic field while they're doing therapy. Maybe that also looks like that they're knowing about their history and knowing all the ways that Black resistance has shown up throughout the history in healing, whether that's with medicinal practices such as root workers or hoodoo, um, whether that's using water as an element of healing because that's been ancestrally passed down, you know, bringing back some of the things that have been forgotten and also, quite frankly, stolen and then, Mm -hmm. um, you know, repurposed by white folks and sold back to us at a higher rate giving that back to the client and saying, that's your healing. That's not theirs. That's your healing practices. And you own that. That's your birthright. And so that's a lot of the work that I do when I think about decolonizing and also incorporating that anti-racism, but also uplifting the client and making them an agent at their own healing. So they don't feel like I'm the expert that knows everything about them. And they just are there as a passive bystander taking on whatever I tell them to, to do. Oh my goodness, Alicia. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for breaking that down. And that, and that, because, you know, oftentimes when we talk about, we, we name the structures in place and we, we name the very real experiences that we're having. And that's always important. You know, it's, it's aspects now where we're, we're past the naming phase and we're literally implementing, we're literally reimagining yes. and reshifting paradigms. And that's just really important to lift up that currently this work is being done. And yeah. you can either, especially if you're in the cultural competency realm or the diverse, excuse me, the diversity and inclusion realm happening, you can start really bringing some of this decolonial framework into the educational processes. And, And for those who have went through, which many of us have, went through white supremacist institutions like Alicia lifted up, you can unlearn this stuff and start networking with people who are actually doing the decolonial work Yes. right now and sh- and highlighting that and taking part in that and doing what you can because it's things that you literally can do i also uh, want to shout out an, an amazing course that's happening i think this is the third year health justice commons um which is a, a wonderful organization they uh, offer a workshop called Transform- Transforming the Medical Industrial Complex. Oh, wow. And yeah, and health, the Health Justice Commons is run by um, queer, non-binary, trans BIPOC, who are also disabled, um, who are also a, a variety of uh, crip folks. So please, please, please 
um, lift up their work, connect with their work. I've taken their course every single year they've had it, and it's a wonderful, wonderful course. So mm -hmm. I advise um, or recommend um, any healthcare practitioner who's really trying to move from a decolonial framework to take that course. And also, Alicia, can you share um, the, the work you lifted up the uh, decolonizing therapy can you share their information again yes i will and that decolonizing therapy course and while it's mostly for therapists i will say that i know that other folks that are not in the therapy field have decided to take part in this course and so um when i did it it was a weekend training it was hosted by shauna murray brown out of baltimore maryland um and she is was is in her phd program finishing it up and so she created this whole decolonizing therapy model that you can actually use an application with multiple tenants um, for how do you actually do this in your work. And she's done all this research. She's led multiple healing circles and groups throughout the Baltimore area, very well known in the activism community out there. And once you uh, take the training with her, it's not like you take the training and that's the end of it. She even has it where you then join her Mighty Networks or an extended community where you can continue to do this work and be challenged around the framework challenged around your thinking, still be in community with other folks who've taken the training. So if you had a client and you're like, hey, I want to talk about this, or you had a question, there's resources in that network. And so she has it. So it's this holistic, ever-evolving thing. And then she also has a listserv called Therapy That Liberates. And so even for folks that might be listening that are looking for a decolonial practitioner in your area, if you go to Therapy That Liberates directory, that's another way to be able to access therapists that have already went through this training, um, that are in the network already, um, and that are doing this decolonial work in the background as well. Yes, 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 yes. And then also, Alicia, I just want to take this uh, moment for you again to share some of some more of the work and some of the other networks that you are connected to if you want to lift up any any of that amazing work that you're doing. Yes, absolutely. So for me, um, while I mostly have been talking about, you know, like just the racism within the fields and, and literally that's where I, like that's my core rooted work. Like when I'm on social media, everything is about the activism. Everything is about how are we challenging all the systems at play and all the ways that it shows up in its oppressive identities. And so if, if anybody follows me on Instagram at Black and Embodied, you'll see mostly that on my Instagram content page. But outside of this, as we talked about, I'm a licensed mental health therapist, and um, I also specialize within racial trauma and healing. And so I um, work with folks that have experienced racial trauma, and then we work through what does this healing process look like for you, which can really be challenging because we're constantly as Black folks, specifically in other folks as well, but specifically in the context of Black folks, being exposed to trauma. So how are you healing as you're constantly still being exposed to that trauma? So we're working through that together. And then on the other hand, I also specialize in working with folks with eating disorders. And I operate from that from a body liberation framework. And so that's not, I'm telling you to diet. I'm not telling you to lose weight. I'm not advocating for any of that stuff. What I'm advocating is for how do you feel the most empowered and embodied in your body? And then how do we um, work through that relationship that you have with your food and your body as well? And so um, I do individual work with that through therapy. Um, you can catch me on some podcasts and I have some videos and panels that I have on my website as well. And then me and Ilya actually lead a group for eating disorders specifically for Black folks called Sage and Spoon. And so that's the group that we have the last Tuesday of every month at six o'clock. And um, you can sign up, sign up on the Sage and Spoon uh, website. So if you type in sageandspoon.com on your um, on your on your Google um, search bar, it should come up to the website, and you can sign up with Ilya and I 
where we talk about how do you work through healing that relationship with your body and food. And we pull back all the layers of colonialism, white supremacy, racism, anti-blackness. We go into it all. So, you know, yes. um, that's just another avenue that you can get into as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Alicia, I just want to thank you for taking the time. I know that you're pulled in many different ways and also just for taking the time to talk during such a very critical moment in history with all that's going on uh, specifically with anti-blackness in the world. Um, yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for all that you do and just for being you. Thank you for being a friend, colleague, comrade. I just love you so, so much. So thank you. Thank you so much, Ilya. I appreciate you like just even having me on to have these conversations because I'll tell y'all, me and Ilya, we talk like this all the time on the phone. And we were like, you know what? We need to go ahead and get together and put this stuff, this stuff out here formally because this is good information and folks need to know about these different topics. And so I appreciate you, Ilya, for keeping it going, for inviting me on so we can even talk about this and have this conversation for folks. Thank you, Alicia. And I just want to lift up people who are currently in a healthcare profession of black folks who are going through the programming we see you yeah. and i know my my purpose um is to continue to help more black folks get into the field and i understand i know we talked all this shit about how rough the fields are i still think it's important for us to in particular get into ally health um, services. I, I think it can be very beneficial in, in, in numerous ways. And just know that there also are many of us that are really trying to reshift these programs. So we see you, we honor you. And this is going to be, is, there's going to be a part two uh, to this podcast and maybe even a part three, because this is something that is really, really uh, important to me. And I just want to share as much information for folks as I can. Absolutely. And I'll say, Ilya, just to follow up to that and say, yeah, I, I don't want anybody like while I think that these conversations are very important and that we're naming this very directly, um, we're not saying don't enter the fields. Right. Because it is important, because if I decided like, you know, way back when that, hey, I'm not doing this, I wouldn't be able to show up and like help so many folks and like be a whole space for so many folks. I like that reframe better. Whole space for so many folks that have been going through so much pain and trauma. Um, and so I appreciate like I don't appreciate that experience, but I appreciate being in the space that I'm in now where I can be able to show up in this way. And so like um, Ilya was saying, things are changing. You know, as more of us are entering the field, we're, ch we're challenging these dynamics, trust and believe. We're writing into these boards. We're writing into these certification programs. Actually, I'm on a, a committee now where we're trying to, um, you know, address some certification concerns around eating disorders so that it is more equitable. We're starting organizations in the background so that Black folks can have a space when they come into these fields. And so know that there are those of us change makers out there that are fighting to make this better. There are associations and organizations led by Black people within each of these fields that are working to say, how do we um, dismantle this systematic racism or oppression that is in these, um, like in, embedded in these systems from the beginning? The beginning. Absolutely, Alicia. Thank you so much for framing it in that way. And yes, and we'll continue to do this work. And and again, y'all, make sure you support Alicia. Make sure you drop donations. Make sure you support her work any way that you can. I will attach all her contact information and all of her various uh, networks um, of work in the show notes. And again, please, if you have the coins, join become a member of my patreon i also have a tier on my patreon solely 
for BIPOC folks um, and queer and trans folks. And that is the $2 um, package. And, and Patreon right now, I do want to lift up, is, is uh, currently um, seeing if they can offer scholarship-based uh, ways that people can uh, extend the gift of scholarships, uh, memberships. So that's coming down the pipeline soon. Because again, y'all, this work ain't free. We doing this a lot of times with limited resources and we doing the best we can. And don't 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 look at our large uh, social media followings, right. in particular on Instagram, especially when we being shadow banned. Right. Especially when a lot of our pages are being whole ass deleted. Exactly. Don't look at our, thank you, Alicia. Don't look at our huge ass followings and think we making all this bank we are very much still in an active struggle moving in a white supremacist system yeah. while also putting a target on our backs by sharing about this information in such a volatile moment in history exactly. so make sure thank you so make sure you you absolutely support this work it ain't easy it ain't free so with that being said alicia is there anything else that you wanted to share any any person or thing you want to lift up I appreciate you, Ilya, and I just wanted just to second everything you just said at the end there. Yes, I think a lot of folks that, you know, see our pages on Instagram, oftentimes they'll say, oh, they got all those, you know, thousands of followers. They must be really well off. But what you don't understand is that most people are following us so that they can just take what we're putting out there, mm. incorporate it for their own learning, but they're not giving anything back, you know, in exchange for that. And so it's usually a one-sided dynamic where they're getting and getting, they're in our DMs, pouring out their heart about all the ways that our content has touched them or not to them. Um, we're the ones receiving death threats in our direct messages um, or, you know, other messages in our um, direct messages from different people. And so even managing the content and putting it out there, yes, we're putting it out there because we feel called to do that and it needs to be said. And at the same time, often it's a lot more labor when you're managing the folks that don't agree or the folks that are just following you so they can cause drama or the folks that are in your DMs disagreeing and being fragile and wanting you to take care of them and do more for them um, in your content. So I do want to just uplift that because some folks do feel like that. And I can say that, you know, I could have so many followers and somebody might send me $10 like once, you know, every three months and that's all. And I'm not saying that anybody has to pay me via social media. I'm just saying that I feel like there's a perception that we're just banking in money or Instagram is paying us and that's not happening at all. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then also, you know, and I feel like Sonia Renee Taylor has touched on this, especially with um, what's happening with um, Patrice. I can't remember her yes, last name. Patrice Colors. Patrice Colors, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter movement, even though she makes her own bank outside of the organization. But this just, just this notion that Black liberationists should not get paid and shouldn't exactly. get paid well, like we absolutely should. So number one, don't be trying to count our coins, even if we was making bank, exactly. that ain't up for you. And exactly. two, continue to support our work. So with that being said, thank y'all so much for listening. This was an amazing conversation. Thank you again, Alicia. Yes. And I'll have everything included in the show notes. All right, peace. Bye y'all. Thanks again for listening to the Decolonizing Fitness Podcast. You can learn more at decolonizingfitness.com. You can also become a member of my Patreon at patreon.com backslash decolonizingfitness. You can also check me out on Instagram at decolonizing underscore fitness. All of the information for today's guest and any additional information mentioned in this episode will be added to the show notes.